0: Hello, everybody. Good morning, Vietnam. (laughs) Okay, so we do this totally geeky thing. Everybody turns on their camera for just a second so we can all give ourselves a group cyber hug. (laughs) Nice to see everybody. I was off, so to speak, for a week or so. Um, I had a death in my family, some of you may know. Um, My niece, actually grandniece, uh, overdose. We think uh, at this point, toxicology is not back, but we're suspecting um, Xanax laced with fentanyl. I mean, total bummer, 22 year old kid, really great kid, just made some bad decisions and got in trouble. So that's why I've been offline a little bit. Um, So I'm back and it's great to be back. It's great to be back with my peeps to see all my buds. Um, What we do, if you're new to this event, we've been doing this ongoing thing for Wow, what is this now, Andy? Like 60 something? Um, yeah, started, 61st. 60 first. Yeah, we started when COVID came on as just a way to hang out and we're just continuing to hang out. And um, it's really fun for me because I, I show up, sometimes I give some spontaneous comments, but mostly it's about you and Q&A and discussion. And since I haven't gone for a couple of weeks, there's a lot of really good questions that have been piped in. So I'm gonna turn to those rather quickly so that we can uh, address this kind of um, so-called backlog. And always best if you're there to to raise your hand and ask your question live. The written ones are fine, of course, but if I can have actually some dialogue with you, then um, some ambiguities are actually worked with and clarified in that regard. But I did want to mention, um, we got a couple of really cool programs coming up, a couple of cool events. Uh, I scheduled interview with really a brilliant neuroscientist, a poet, artist. This guy's amazing, Ruben Lakanan, who's um, in Amsterdam. I become very fond of him he sends me his poetry which is really good and he is really sharp so he has uh, he sent me a couple of papers on uh, his studies with um meditation uh, really good stuff really good stuff so he set up for august 6th which means we'll release it shortly after that um i got another one coming up with amanda morley who We're gonna be talking about the power of uh, respiration and breathing, um, which is so central to the whole spiritual thing. So that's, I'm I'm excited about that. I also have some cool programs coming up. Uh, My first live person on a dead topic, (laughs) Shamala Mountain Center. and and, uh, Andy's gonna ping up that stuff in the chat. My first live event in 18 months, Um, a week long event, hybrid program, so you can do it online or in person. Uh, at SMC um, on the Comic Bar will be coming. I'm really excited about this one. Um, it's part of a series I've, I've started. No pre-wex. You don't have to have attended the first one to attend this one. And so he'll post the link to that. We also have our annual deep dive event starting. This is special, especially for nightclub members. They get like 50% reduction on this one. This is by far my biggest deepest dive into the natural meditations of the year. Um, I used to do it in Sedona, but this year I'm doing it online is two three day events in October and November with a month in between where we can practice all the stuff. And so Andy will send a link to that as well. And then um, a brand new program, actually what used to be this deep dive that is now in Sedona is a new program on um, post mindfulness practices meditation and those of you who have been to this retreat center know just how stunning this place is. It's such a cool place. So anyway, that's, that's enough of upcoming stuff. Um, and so I'm gonna start with these questions cause they're really good and there's so many of them. And I'm gonna bypass my usual like spontaneous thing and pick that up next week or whenever I'm, I'm back next. Um, so not in any order of priority but I'm just gonna get through a couple of these. And if if the people are listening who submitted these questions want any sort of follow-up, just raise your hand. If you want to write something in, you can do it either in the chat column, Andy will read it to me. Or like I mentioned, you just go to the reactions thing, the button at the bottom, raise the raised hand thing, you get flagged, and then we can bring you on. Um, Any question about any topic um, except for politics? (laughs) (laughs) Happy to talk about it, but maybe not the best um, venue for that. so here's one from Ron. Hi, Andrew, have you ever come across a grading system for lucid dreams? I've journaled close to 500 lucid dreams, good for you. Over the years and developed a simple 10 level system based on duration, clarity and agency. It's been a helpful way to catalog and track progress, but I've often wondered if, if I just reinvented the wheel and some better system exists. If anyone knows of one, it would be you. Well, I don't know of one. Any thoughts appreciated? Um, there's probably something out there. I, I do remember vaguely coming across something, um, but I'm not aware of any overt grading system. And, and Rhonda, if you're listening, I'd love to see what you came up with. It could be great. I mean, maybe we can use your system, right? <laughs> I'm serious, actually. Uh, there are ways to classify this, in, in fact, in, in, in addition to the ways you're talking about—duration, uh, clarity, lucidity, agency—absolutely, positively, because these things do occur across the spectrum, right? From really short micro um, dreamlets that last really a couple seconds to um, dreams in prime time dream time that can last an hour. I, I heard somebody say three hours once. I said, I just don't believe that. Um, I, I, some people say they have three hour lucid dreams. Ah, you know, my BS meter goes into uh, hyperdrive when I hear that. It's like, you're not even in REM for the entire night for three hours. But anyway, maybe somebody can do that. Um, most people, if they can reach the 45 minute mark or an hour mark, that's colossal. So you go from short to long from barely lucid to hyper lucid. And so right there, you got four metrics. Um, And then you have things like you mentioned, um, agency, clarity, and the like. And so Ron, if you have something you can share with me, I'd love to see it. There's probably something out there, I'm not aware of it. Certainly in the scientific community, I'm not aware of it. But if something comes up, I will let you know. Uh, From Amanda, at the end of his interview, Ian Baker. So Ian Baker uh, is this really cool guy. Um, I did an interview with him maybe Six weeks ago, he's written really elegantly on what are called the hidden lands, the Bayo. And I'm gonna to try to bring Ian back because this is a, he's such a rock star and get him to actually do his presentation because the visuals, the slideshow aspect of, of what he has to present is kind of jaw dropping. So in his interview, uh, Ian said he's working on research about meditation with an organization, something like Shalabab or whatever. Do you know what the name is? Yeah, he's talking about, his relationship with Alan Wallace. That's, um, he, he's developed a connection with Alan who's, who works a lot. Actually, he's written one of the better books on lucid dreaming by the way, Dreaming Yourself Awake. And Alan, just uh, this week, um, in fact, if I can go to my other, I don't have a third computer, I have to pull out of it, um, but maybe I'll post if I can somewhere during this chat. He just sent me, Alan's a good friend, he has, he has so much stuff going on now, it's unbelievable. And he just sent me the most sophisticated website um, in conjunction to the opening of his contemplative research center that he, that he opened in Crestone, which is three and a half hours from where I live, not that far, in a spectacular setting against the, against the Sangre de Cristos. It's a place where I do most of my retreats these days. So Alan is amazing. Um, Ian is working with him. That's, that's who's kind of uh, the research that he referred to. And um, if you're not familiar with Alan's work, it's definitely noteworthy. He's really a pretty remarkable individual. Um, and so if I can somehow maybe peel away when some of the live questions come in, go to my inbox, cut and paste this and send it to Andy, I can send you the link to his website. Um, but fundamentally, if you just Google Alan Wallace Contemplative Research, you'll find, yeah, centers I think in Tuscany, um, now, in uh, definitely in Crestone, he bought that land about a year ago, and he is doing um, amazing work. Um, he's one of my heroes. This guy. Okay, so here we go. This is from Joe. Uh, this is this one's out there in a good way. I love it. <laughs> what role? And again, if, if I saw Joe's listening, if, uh, my dear friend Joe, if he has any additional comments along any of these lines, Joe, you're always welcome to step in and make the contribution. What role do Nagas play in our world? Okay, now we're getting into some stuff, right? Um, I'll go through the question and then I'll riff a little bit about it. That's one thing I love about our, what we're doing here is just the spectrum of these of these questions. I mean, they're great, they're just all over the place. Uh, what role do Nagas play in our world? I'll define who they are in a second. In the Naga practice, and so where Joe's referring to, yes, indeed, there are certain types of um, liturgies uh, Pujas and the like practices that you can do where you can appease, propitiate these Nagas, Um, you can can nourish them, as she puts it. In the Naga practice, we nourish them with an offering, but in a fire puja, we repel them. So are they good or bad? Well, they're both. (laughs) They're liminal. They're malevolent or benevolent, depending on how you engage in them. Also, you can, uh, so let me come back to your other question. Let me finish the thing on the Nagas. So Nagas are are basically these kind of serpent beings um, that, you know, what role do they play in our world? That's hard to say. Um, Part of it depends on how much you believe in these things. And Kempo Rinpoche, my teacher once, somewhat surprisingly to me, actually said the, the efficacy, the power of these Nagas is somewhat proportional to your belief in them. So I can't say with any authority, if you don't believe in them, do they have some some effect on you? Well, according to the kind of more mystical, esoteric approaches of tantric Buddhism, which is where these these non-human intelligences, these, by the way, are part of what is now being termed exo-studies. And um, I I have on the docket to interview Sean Esbjorn Hargens, who's an integral thinker, who's written really intelligently about these um, entities, including things like, I, he's, I got a paper from him that's like one of the most out there things I've ever re- read that really brings tremendous intellectual rigor to the reality of these entities, um, these non-human intelligences, and what he calls the ontology matrix, which is like, what is it really, how do you really constitute what's real? That's what ontology is. So I'm going to try to bring um, Sean on because this is a topic that is completely in line with the stuff he riffs on that also includes, again, we're really getting out there men in black kind of thing, you know, UFOs and the veracity of that. Um, anyway, it, it, it's a really cool, interesting topic. So the Nagas really it partly depends on how much you believe in them. Um, they let me tell you a little bit about these entities. <laughs> Because maybe when I describe them, you'll go, oh yeah, I, I know, I know these, these peeps. Let me say something in a general kind of uh, umbrella set of comments here. My dear friend Reggie Ray has written quite extensively about the importance of relating to, to non-human intelligences, the, the, the importance of relating to um, energetics, life forms that are non-human. And um, why should we think? that, that we're somehow the only life force. I mean, just think it, we're not, we're talking purely from a physical astrophysical point of view. Just think of the numbers here, which are mind bending. There are over t- minimum 2 trillion galaxies, minimum in the known universe, which just gets bigger the more they look. 2 trillion galaxies. Each galaxy contains at least a hundred billion to 200 billion stars. So right there, the numbers are just like truly astronomical. They estimate that there are more stars in the in the universe than there are grains of sand on the entire earth. I, you know, when I walk on a beach and, I, and I, I look at these things or I fly over the Sahara desert, it's like, are you kidding me? And then around these suns, like our solar system, there are planets, multiple planets. So there are trillions upon trillions upon trillions of planets in the known universe. And that's just on this bandwidth we're not even talking about dimensions that are extra or trans uh, um, physical. And so the idea is that, you know, as William James and so many sensitive people have been talking about for for ages, I mean, there are just oceans of different types of sentient beings. And Reggie writes about this beautifully in his book, Secrets of the Vajra World, and and really the importance of of establishing a relationship to these unseen beings. what Joe's referring to here is yes, in fact, we're awash in this type of non-human intelligence sentience. It's all over, all over the place. And using liturgies and practices, we can magnetize them or we can repel them. Um, and so I remember very, very clearly uh, one major teacher of mine said once, really bullet point. He said, you know, you guys need to realize you are not alone. There are these agencies, these forces, these non-human intelligences that can help you. And so the Nagas, just to show you a little bit about what they are, they, they tend to inhabit bodies of water. And, um, and again, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you what I've read here, right? <laughs> and they inhabit the roots of great trees, okay? Um, I love this kind of stuff. They often, and you'll see how this ties in, the, the Buddhist listening, they often guard treasures um, hidden deep underwater. <laughs> this would make the greatest movie, wouldn't it, right? And um, <clears throat> they have the ability if you believe in this sort of stuff to actually appear and masquerade as human beings. And again, so take it or leave it. They possess a range of magical powers um, including the ability to masquerade as human beings. And um, they actually have real um, kind of historical attraction in the life of the Buddha when the Buddha was um, practicing under the Bodhi tree. In fact, if you watch the, um, who's the Italian director uh, who directed the life of the Buddha, there's a scene where the Naga actually, his hood opens and protects the Buddha um, from a rainstorm. And so Nagas have been closely connected to the life of the Buddha. Allegedly these Nagas appeared sometimes even in the audience when the Buddha himself was teaching. Um, the really important point from a Buddhist perspective is that he entrusted the Buddha, allegedly historically, entrusted one of the most profound sets of teachings, um, some of the Prajnaparamita Sutras to the Nagas, who then hid them at the bottom of the sea. Isn't this stuff, It's stuff is so out there, I love it. And then guess who came along to discover them? Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, Naga connected to his name, the greatest single philosopher in the history of Buddhism. And uh, so um, Nagarjuna was what re- revealed this text, like a Therma text that was hidden, protected by the Nagas, written by the Buddha. And then he proceeded to um, expound on um, some of the greatest teachings ever written in the history of Buddhist thought altogether. So, uh, yes, the traditions do these liturgical practices, pujas, to either appease them or to cultivate them. The tradition says that um, you can irritate these forces by digging um, into the earth inappropriately, destroying trees, polluting the waters. You know, you're know, you messing with their landscape, so to speak. And so I, you know, I, I don't have personal experience with these puppies. Um, I guess they're not puppies, that's a different non-human intelligence. I don't have personal experience with these entities. Um, but the the, the tradition does speak about them authoritatively and do with it what you will. Um, Also, can you, this is all back to Joe, can you have moments of enlightenment? Yes, these are called nyam, um, experiences, not realizations, um, where everything seems perfect and there doesn't seem like anything needs to be done without actually being enlightened. Oh, absolutely. Totally, and that is in fact, Joe, the difference between a nyam, um, a state versus realization or a trait. Full-blown, stabilized enlightenment, that's called realization, or in Western language, a trait. But you can have glimpses of what you're talking about, glimpses glimpses of non-duality, glimpses of the awakened state, glimpses of enlightenment, where in fact everything does seem perfect. It's perfectly complete, it really does feel perfectly pure and perfect. Um, but that glimpse has not transformed or matured into a gaze that's not stable. Um, and so that's not at all uncommon and you can absolutely positively do that without actually having become fully enlightened. In other words, your, your experience is not stable. Experience by definition is something that has a beginning and an end. And we all have spiritual experiences. The, in themselves, they're, they're actually great But they can become problematic um, if you don't know how to relate to them properly because then you get really sticky, you get to them, you become a state junkie where you think it's just about attaining these particular highs, it's not. Um, So lots to say on that, but I'll let that go for now. And lastly, do Dharmapalas. Dharmapalas again are another class of non-human intelligence. That I work with Dharmapalas, Lokapalas, Chetrapalas, these are all protector principles. Let me finish the question and I'll on it. Uh, lastly, do Dharmapalas just protect us on a spiritual level or are they helpful on the physical level? Uh, both the Dharmapalas and then uh, subsumed under that are Lokapalas, Chetrapalas, all these kind of subsidiary groups of protectors. This is a huge uh, and important topic in Vajrayana Tantric Buddhism where you actually take refuge um, in this kind of principle. It's a slightly different set of refuges than in classic Buddhism, where it's Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. In Tantra, you include the Dakinis and Dharmapalas. And so again, if you believe in this sort of thing, and I totally do because I have had experiences with these for sure, both in my dreams of some of the most powerful experiences of my life of protectors actually entering my my dreamscape, uh, mind-blowingly powerful, hyperlucid dreams, so, these, in my experience, these puppies, again, they're not puppies. Uh, <laughs> these entities are totally real. They are, here's another way to say it they are just as real or unreal as we are. In fact, on one level, they're more real because now these are awakened. These, these are not like nagas. The nagas are still, they're liminal beings that are still within the realm of samsara. Dharmapalas are not. Dharmapalas are trans-samsaric beings. These are enlightened beings. They're Buddhas basically in the form of protectors. Super powerful. I I do protector practice every single night, Mm -hmm. bar none. Even if I'm lying in bed and I forget, I actually have all this, this liturgy memorized. I actually do it when I'm lying down in bed. So I have a very powerful connection to these entities. I've had direct experience with them. And how do they work? Well, this is a colossally beautiful, important, massive topic, but they do protect us both spiritually and physically. And I'll share a story with you. Um, but really what the important point here is, Joe, is um, they don't protect your comfort plan, right? So when I first started working with this practice decades ago, it was like, almost like I was praying, you know, these little Dharmapalas, just like angels and whatever, they're gonna come and they're gonna make my life all cozy, right? Uh, no. The Dharmapalas are there to protect the Dharma. They're not there to protect your version of the Dharma or your comfort plan or your little egoic thing. And so I actually asked this question to Tongramiche once, because before the Chinese invaded Tibet, you watch the videos and read the history, all the monasteries throughout Tibet really started ramping up their liturgies, their protector practices. They were doing it nonstop. And still the Chinese came in and ravaged the country. And I said, Rubiche, well, it didn't really look like the protectors worked. And he said, well, yes, actually it did work because the teachings, most of them were saved. And in fact, the diaspora, the spreading of the teachings that propagated after the invasion of the Chinese, turned out to be of tremendous benefit to the world. So the Dharmapalas do not work to protect your version of protection your version of your comfort plan. They're there to protect the Dharma, which means this is why you have to be careful when you sign on to these practices. They will give you what you need and not necessarily what you want. And you have to be ready for that. They will give you what you need, not necessarily what you want. Sometimes the Dharma palace can come in and throw your life into total chaos. You know, what did he say? Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. So when your life actually falls apart, that could be protective principle at work. Throwing out the ridiculous conventional ways of of your life and really challenging you to expand into new dimensions of reality. Do they work on a physical level? Yes. And I'll share just one story here because again, this is a really big topic, but here's a story that Zigar Kontra Rinpoche shared with us. um, I can't remember where I heard it from him. But he does these things, you know, it's part of his standard practice as well. And he shared this story where he was walking along the, the Mesa Trail, which is a hill hike um, 20 minutes from where I live. And he was walking there um, and he had, to, he had to pee. And so um, he was like about to pee on this little bush. And all of a sudden he just had this thought, ah, maybe I shouldn't do this. And so he backed away. And he threw like a little rock into the bush and he heard, do you like my rattlesnake imitation? That's a Naga, hey, this is tied into the Naga question, right? So he hears this rattlesnake that's in the bush. And so just before he could have triggered the snake that could have bitten him, something popped into his mind that said, hey, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't do this. And he said clearly, because he's so sensitized, he said, that was definitely the protectors. And they generally work, again, in anonymous ways. You know, they don't sign their art. They can manifest with serendipity, with synchronicity, with a sudden arising of a thought. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't take that turn. Maybe I should go there instead of there. We never know. And this is part of the, the really the breathtaking ineffable magic of, of the way these entities work. So really great question, Joe. Um, I'll let it go from there. I hope that helps. Um, I find this stuff really cool. Oh, well, from Barbara, what protect, protector practice do you do? Okay, I'll tell you what I do. Um, my principal protectors are Ekajati. She's the great Dzogchen. Um, she protects the 17 tantras of Dzogchen. So every single day, in fact, I. Oh, where do I have it? Oh, she's outside. I, I have little um, little rupas, statues of all of them, but they're in my other room. I could show you. If you have a second, I can pause and show. In fact, let me get it. She's pretty cool. So hold tight. Okay, I'm in a, this is great. I'm in like a show and tell mode. I love this sort of stuff. So, so here we go. Are you ready? All right, if there are any children in the room, you wanna dismiss the children, right? <laughs> you don't wanna freak them out. So here, here are two of mine. So I'll, I'll name the ones I do. I do Ekajati. She's my main gal. Um, <clears throat> protector of the 17th doctrine tantras. The main protectress, um, Dakini. Of Chunk Rambachay. So, this is what she looks like. She is a rock star. So, check this out. Can you see her? She is awesome. She is so killer cool. She's got one eye, one fang, one breast. Eka means one. Eka, like Ekayana, Ekajati, one. And so everything about her represents non-duality, unity. Um, And so I've I've had the most powerful dreams with her. Maybe someday I'll, I don't share these online because I don't want them to be recorded. But in person, sometimes I will share these super powerful dreams. These are the greatest dreams of my life, really. Where, you know, like Ekajati enters my mind space. It's like unbelievable. So I do her every night. Then the second one I do is Mahakala um he's way upstairs so i can't get you that one you'll also find him at the stupa of dharmakaya like at SMC. when we do the program we go up and say hi to him um he's ekajati and mahakala are the two main protectors of my teacher and um, one of my one of his foremost teachers uh, the dorje lopan once teaching on this topic he said you know Trump gave us when 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 left Tibet, the only rupa that he took, the only little statue that he took was in fact a statue of Mahakala. Um, so I, he's, he's a four armed, I have him both in a, in a statue and also in a tanka form. Um, I do him every single day. I also do this gal, she, I mean, I, again, make sure the kids are out of the house, right? So check this one out, right? Is that awesome or what? So Joe, I'm sure Joe recognizes this is Simhavuka. She's a lion headed one. She's one of the manifestations of Padmasambhava. I did in my retreat as did Joe, I did months of practice with her reciting her mantra. That's her email address. So I have, I have the inside email address to these peeps. And so I do her Ekajati, Simhavuka, magyal Pomra, Gesar, Um, And then every once in a while, I'll I'll kind of bring in a couple others, but these are my main ones and I do them every single day. So, okay, let me get a couple more and then I'll get some of the raised hands. I love this stuff. I love the show and tell part. I've got, I I could have like a little Tibetan top shop here. I've got dozens of this stuff and maybe someday in a total show and tell mood, I'll bring all the stuff out and show it to you. I, I got some pretty cool things in my house. I'm I, I'm not materialistic, you know, I'm just like spiritually materialistic, right? I got thousands of tankas and rupas and all kinds of, I've transcended possessions. I don't think so. Okay, so Stephanie, um, and then I'll get the live ones. I enjoyed the conversation you had with Karen. That must've been last time. Oh yes, using the water whirlpool metaphor, um, where this is a sort, but where's the sort of metaphor? but where in this sort of metaphor is there room for any kind of indestructible drop? Okay, so what Stephanie is referring to, I believe is a couple of weeks ago, I was sharing, um, oh, here it is. In fact, I got it right here. This is one of the best books I've read in the last six months. Check it out. It's not an easy read, but it is really bloody insightful. Why Materialism is Baloney how do skeptics know there is no death and fathom answers to life, the universe, and everything? Bernardo Castro, really sharp cookie, um, big time scientist, worked at CERN, uh, doubled PhD, and he comes to insights through pure reasoning and logic that are breathtaking. Um, the fact that he comes to these insights without meditation to me is like, are you kidding me? So I'm 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 a rapid fan of this guy, and he argues brilliantly about um, idealistic um, description of reality, that the world is not made of matter. Materialism is baloney. So I I now call him the baloney man. I'm gonna try to get him on for an interview as well. If I can, he's turning into a rock star. And so he he writes in a handful of really powerful books how the world really is made of mind, uh, mentation, idealism. It's really clever stuff. And so in this book, you can see it actually on the cover is what you see a whirlpool. So he uses a series of very sophisticated metaphors um, realizing all the while that when you talk about things like uh, non-duality and the nature of mind is being nature of reality is being mind, uh, conventional language falls um, way short. In fact, language is one of the principal ingredients for the creation of, of duality. And so he writes, he, he kind of transitions out of languaging into metaphor image. And so one of his best images is this whirlpool image that the sense of self can actually be seen as this whirlpool. And then it gets really complicated because then, he, then the whirlpool becomes made of this kind of metal that reflects. And so at a certain point, the whirlpool is like more complicated than the reality it's depicting. Um, and he also talks about that because he just keeps adding on and on to the, to the, to the metaphor, to the image. But here's an easy way to, to answer your question your stuff. So let me finish reading it. This one is relatively simple to clear up. Uh, the whirlpool image, where in the sort of metaphor is there any room for the indestructible drop? And I'll define what that is. I have trouble reconciling this drop idea once the whirlpool has dissolved into the full body of water, or using a different image when the child light has turned to face and dissolve into the mother light. So that's yet another image. We can set that one aside. So Stephanie, the answer here is that uh, the indestructible drop in Tibetan, the term is machikpa tigle. Tigle is the word that translates drop or bindu. This is a slight unfortunate um, usage, and uh, rendering of tigle, even though it's, it's uh, uh, translationally accurate, it's, it's imagistically confusing. And by this, what I mean, and, and Bob Thurman helped me with this, when he said the indestructible drop really means the indestructible continuum. So when you think of drop, when they talk about indestructible drop, this is inner yogic tantric language for for talking about what it is that continues. And and the minute everybody hears this, they go, oh, there it is, there's the soul. I knew Buddhists had souls. I knew this is what they were referring to. Um, Well, they don't because the indestructible drop doesn't refer to any kind of particle it's really indestructible continuum. And so therefore then this image that Maloney man has <laughs> of, uh, I hope he listens to some of my stuff and gets a chuckle out of this. I love you, Bernardo, man, you're a great guy. Then what happens really, if it's an indestructible continuum, not a drop, then the whirlpool is totally appropriate because then when you die, and again, this is why it's so beautiful, what happens is the the, Whirlpool, it just dissipates, relaxes back into the continuum, back into the stream. So there you go, that one's easy. Just get rid of the notion of drop, replace it with the notion of continuum. Okay, so let me get one or two live ones. And then um, again, there's so many really great questions that came in, but I wanna honor the people who have raised their hands and who are waiting. So Myra, if you're there, um, fire away.
1: Oh, so much you have said today, my, I am. (laughs) It's It's so interesting, but (laughs) I've been
0: gone for two weeks. Right. It's all my energy. Oh
1: my gosh. Um, actually what is coming to mind first, um, it's kind of funny that they began with the naga's because I had a a dream with the Naga, Mm. um, maybe 10 years ago, before I had any read about a Naga and it was an albino Naga with ruby eyes. Oh, wow. That was wrapped in a tree, and I came into my backyard, and it was almost like the Babylonian um, gardens something that was oh, so wow. beautiful. Wow. And I felt that the Naga told me, Imagine if you only cultivate the soil. So, oh. it, this is so beautiful, and it could be even more beautiful if you cultivate yeah. the soil. Oh,
0: that's beautiful.
1: And it was, yeah. and I could not figure out because it was kind of strange to. To dream with such a big, huge, I never heard about it, and it had ruby eyes. But what I was going to uh, ask you is that many, many, um, I don't know in what class, you mentioned an encounter with a teacher. That when you look through his eyes and you went for a yeah. question and you right. look in his eyes, you almost Kempo. saw like going through space. And yeah, it reminded me of an experience that I once had. It was not a Buddhist teacher or anything like that. It, can you tell us that story again? It's so yeah, beautiful.
0: I can share this one. Yeah, this was a big deal for me. Um, so what Maya is referring to is a number of years ago, I've been studying with, a, I consider him one of my main teachers, even though he's retired now because he had some strokes. Many of you know him, uh, Kemple. Yamso Rinpoche, may I'm really Buddha amazing individual And I studied with him for a while and I had the opportunity this is like 20 years ago now plus um, 20 plus years ago to have a private audience with him a private meeting with him and so uh, it was a couple of things were super interesting one was I had arranged you know a handful of questions so I was like I was sitting outside the waiting area and I was kind of like rehearsing my questions. I was a little bit nervous. And so when I was kind of then invited into this, his immediate chambers, it was the most amazing thing. He was like a mind eraser. It's like, it's like all my questions just disappeared. It's like, it's like, oh, what was I gonna ask him? They are like, all my questions were gone. And so um, I sat down at his feet. He was, uh, I love this guy, cause he's sitting in a chair, I mean like two feet in front of me and, like, and the guy's drinking a beer. I mean, it's just so, that's my kind of teacher, right? <laughs> That's my kind of t-shirt. <laughs> so he's sitting there slogging down this big mall. And I said, I, I love this guy, right? <laughs> so I, I, uh, I, I kept my head down in, in deference and also I was a little bit nervous. And I looked up and as my, I shared the story um, when I looked up and I looked into his face. I mean, he's like four feet in front of me. It was like, I'd never seen a, a eyes like that. I looked into his eyes and there was nobody there. I mean I can't I I don't know how to describe it. I looked directly into his eyes and there was nobody on that on his side of his face. It was empty. I mean there it was like literally like looking into the universe and it it totally stopped my mind and it sent this chill up my back is like oh my gosh who or what am I looking at here? Um, it was it, it, to this day, it remains like this. These are not the eyes of a normal human being. There was nobody on the other side of those eye, eyes. And so then what happened um, this is very interesting because I only learned this later. Um, the Prajnaparamita literature, again, protected by the Bhagas. So these things are somewhat connected. This tradition talks about the different types of what are called divine eyes. Um, and these are the eyes, literally, of the awakened ones. And one of them is the ability. To, uh, to penetrate literally almost like x-ray eyes. It, it is really beautiful teaching um, about these kind of five types of eyes. And so I experienced the power of those eyes in, in yet a second way, because as I finally collected myself after like being blown away, I, I actually was able to ask him my question. Um, and I didn't speak enough Tibetan at the time. And so the translator was translating it and, and as I was waiting for his answer, Rinpoche just did the most amazing thing. He he actually looked at me with this and with all the love and respect with this kind of shit eating grin. Like, you know, just this like, I an indescribable appearance on his face. And he was like scanning me almost like like a, an x-ray machine. He was like looking up and down at me. I never felt so exposed or naked but I also never felt so loved. And I just had this ineffable feeling that he was reading my karmic DNA. He was seeing right through me, seeing right through my question. And actually his answer didn't have much to do with my question. His, he was actually answering a question I didn't even know I had. And because of the impact of that experience, uh, it was I asked him to become my teacher because like there's something really going on with this guy. <laughs> so anyway, I, I just throw that into the mix because it was one of these um really powerful encounters with these really amazing awakened beings that to me continues to inspire such devotion to people that are just so awake that have such insight literally that they can just penetrate through all appearances and his eyes actually were something i will never forget so anyway mara thanks for the opportunity to share that story and thanks for the that's cool (laughs)
1: yeah I mean I I could not believe that he was asking because I was walking a couple days ago and I thought about the dream again and he came to say okay I have to share um but so the next question is that those are moments that there's a confluence of of events that you were ripe to see this presence but maybe you interacted with him many other times and although you still have that memory, the, the other conversations probably were, or teachings or um, experiences were not as effective or effective or dramatic as that time. Mm-hmm. Is that because the confluence of the moment and the causes and the conditions at, where a person, I, I'm looking and tying it up to one of your experience that it could be that any of these manifestations or protections all of a sudden manifest and they're like manifested in front of you in so many different ways. And if you're ripe to see them, then you have the experience. And then that same person may be another experience later.
0: Absolutely, 100% spot on. Yeah, that's the way it works. So there has to be this kind of synchronicity, tendril, auspicious coincidence, where all these um, factors, causes, and conditions come into play. And sometimes, you know, it's very interesting. There's so much to say about this. Sometimes when those things happen, they're called golden gates and they, they don't stay open for very long. And so if you don't actually recognize them for what they are and you don't step into that moment or that gate, the gate closes. Um, and so that's also what makes them even more impactful because you realize this is just a particular synchronicity, auspicious coincidence where all these factors come together and then these things open, but they don't always stay open like that, right? And so therefore you want to take advantage of it. You want to recognize it for what it is. You want to really treasure it. But in short, what you're saying in in terms of my understanding is spot on. Thank you. Welcome, as usual, great question. Okay, so let me get one more written one and then we'll go to um, Lisa who um, has her hand raised which is great, I always love hearing from her. So Kimberly, uh, okay. Being relatively new to the teachings of Buddhism, what should I start learning first? Oh, okay. Uh, What should I start learning first? Well, several ways to answer this, Kimberly. One is um, start perhaps um, being curious and learning about yourself Um, because fundamentally this whole thing is about learning who you really are. And and it's learning about, I'm I'm gonna say this kind of generally, and then I'll be a little bit specific about maybe referring you to some books and that sort of thing. But there's a beautiful line from John Kabat-Zinn where he says something like this. I I just, when I first heard it, uh, I just loved it. He says something like, when you come to know the mind, um, you discover Let's see, let's see, how does it go? Oh yes, when, when, when you know the mind, you, you, you come to discover all things wonders, beautiful arts, poetry, music and the like. When you don't know the mind, you get Auschwitz. And so um, that's a really powerful statement that fundamentally what you wanna start learning first, learn about um, who you are. Learn about the nature of your own mind and heart because everything in the entire path is really directing you inwards, directing you towards that type of investigation. So start learning about who you are, who am I? I mean, Ramana Naharshi, uh, the great Advaita Vedantic sage, really arguably this was the essence of his entire spiritual path, answering the question, who am I? That's what the Buddha answered the night of his awakening. So start learning about who you are. Uh, meditation is, is an exquisite tool for doing that. Um, but with that said, practically speaking, then the Buddhist tradition is one reason I, I'm such a fan of this path is incredibly sophisticated with its kind of conveyor belt approach to truth and to reality that you start first with what's called the narrow vehicle. Um, narrow, it's called Theravada Hinayana. It's not narrow in a kind of negative pejorative sense. It's narrow in exactly the sense I'm talking about. You start with yourself. So you start learning about Hinayana, Theravadan teachings. And again, I'll give you some literature you can refer to. And then from there, the conveyor belt takes you into the Mahayana and then into the Vajrayana. Um, And so there's so much literature out there now, but because he's such a good friend and uh, and I like the book so much, Indestructible Truth by Reggie Ray. Um, I mentioned him earlier. Um, he's a dear friend of mine. It's, it's a really fine, fine introduction to give you an kind of overarching overview of the whole thing. And then really for me without up here, the works of, of Chogyam Trungpa, right? Cutting through spiritual materialism is, is breathtaking in its scope, cool myth of freedom. So, I mean, I could literally recommend hundreds but those would be the ones I'd recommend. From a practitioner, a master, who's been one of the greatest influences in my life, Chilgyam Trungpa, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, Myth of Freedom, written decades ago, absolute masterpieces from a slightly more kind of academic, but not in a negative sense, because Reggie is also a very deep practitioner, um, Indestructible Truth, gives you a wonderful survey and, and kind of segue entryway into the whole path. Okay, all right. So, Lisa, is it okay if I call you that? Lisa.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Hi. Uh,
2: oh, hi. So this time, not about absolute truth. Um... <laughs> I love your
0: questions. You can ask me anything you want. <laughs>
2: yeah, I have so many questions, but now about um, the practice of awareness of awareness. Yeah. And you told me to buy the book about the jhanas and I did
0: that. Oh, right. Concentration. Yeah. What did you think of it?
2: Well, uh, I find it a bit boring but
0: uh, <laughs> okay, okay.
2: But, but it's quite a, a nice map so to speak, but it's not like it excited me a lot. Uh, okay. Or okay. Me. But right. uh, I appreciate it as a as a map so to speak. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not sure it's, if it's, it was about the first jhana or what I asked you, but right. now I tried to practice, I, I, I practiced again.
3: Okay.
2: And what I found out about awareness of awareness is that, um, when I, I do it when I'm walking mostly.
4: Okay. And, and,
2: um. It, it started like to merge like the, the one the awareness of the awareness started to to be one in in uh, to, so to speak and it it turned out to be practically a self aware
0: awareness so, are you talking about reflexively aware awareness, like gveshe? Uh, when you say self-aware awareness, that, that has a, that's a loaded term. Can you say more about what that means to you?
2: Um, it means uh, from from experience, um, just like um, a new di- dimension adds to awareness. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's like a lot, an additional dimension. I can't nice. explain it differently. Uh, okay. Like when you have some hallucinogen genes um, you, and you come down, there is such a depth in the experience, an additional depth.
0: Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. right?
2: Uh, so it's not about awareness is perceiving awareness, but it's like one, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. So let me just say something right there. That's a really beautiful statement and very good for you because when we talk about awareness of awareness, this again is one of these terms that that can be interpreted in several different ways. And so on one level, awareness of awareness refers to the practice of open awareness, non-referential shamatha, um, which as beautiful as that is, it's still subtly dualistic, right? And so perhaps what you're talking about is true awareness of awareness. So this is which is where awareness does in fact become reflexively aware of itself. So it's not a metacognition in the traditional yeah. sense. It's, it's, you can't even use the word meta because that, that, that no. seems to denote something outside. It's where the awareness just kind of, the literal, the literal term in Tibetan is called the where awareness kind of falls into itself. And then all you experience is this self-reflexive cognition, luminous emptiness. Yeah. So if that's what's going on for you, that's fantastic. And that definitely, and I can see if that's your perspective, why the book on the Jananas might, might be a little bit boring because as beautiful as those, those um, eight Jananas are, they're still absolutely within the realm of samsara. They're still sem, they're not Rigpa. And so even the eighth Janana, as subtle as that is, um, it's not. It's not the whole shebang. There's. There's still a subtle witness at that point. There's still consciousness at play, and so if in fact um, you're experiencing what I seem to hear, you're experiencing. I could see why that book would be a little bit like okay, interesting, but so what? Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, cool.
2: What? What? Just. Uh, just um, a little addition. It's like it's extremely alive. Mm-hmm. This experience, right? Yeah. Uh, like like. Um, and a, yes, an additional um, dimension that opens up and yeah. the, the space opens up and yeah. Yeah, so. and
0: so and so to connect that to what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, how foundational, if that term even speaks to you, does that appear to you? Um, when you look back on it or when you're in that space, <laughs> does it seem um, kind of irrevocably true or does it feel like there's something even beyond that? Or is that an open question for you?
2: Well, uh, I I don't know. It's where I'm at at the moment. So (laughs) I I think uh, who knows what's going on, right? Um, Sometime with some humans. But for me, it feels very uh, complete. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. Thank you for sharing it. I always love to hear from you. You're such a sharp person. And uh, I can see again, like why the, 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 absorption states could be somewhat limiting to you. So, Uh,
2: uh, yeah, but it's really, for me, it it takes some, you know, some uh, leap to go into that. It's like, you know, it's like exercising in a way, right? And I'm sometimes too lazy. Do you have any, (laughs) though it's so beautiful, it's, it's, uh, you know, Take something. Do you have any, any recommendation? Well, you
0: know, yeah, this is, the, this is a very interesting question that, um, that has to do with the role of effort in actualizing this type of state, because on one level, you can't actualize it through effort. Um, yeah. On one level, you actualize it through relaxation. That's what enters in, into that space. And so where the role of effort comes into play is actually creating a holding environment, a space that is conducive to that opening. So that's, the pl- that's where effort comes into play. Because at a certain point, if you're trying to achieve it, if you're striving, uh-huh. like Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, striving is the only that's obstacle. It, it backfires because it's a subtle form of grasping. And so the role of effort is to create an environment through your practice where you can kind of enter that space and relax. So um, yeah, it's, it's just really the, the fine art of proper relaxation. That's really the, the fundamental um, almost paradox of the path, that it's really the process of non-doing. It's literally at the yeah. highest levels, it's called non-distracted, non-meditation. And so therefore, I, again, there's so much to say here, Lisa, but you know, yeah. for now I would just simply say bravo for you, excellent. Um, it's still an experience, which means it's great. Um, now the trick is to just simply reinstate the conditions to bring about the experience. In other words, don't grasp after it, don't try yeah. overtly to attain it, um, aspire to do so, because it's a little bit like trying to, you know, put your thumb on a bead of mercury, the more you try to get it, the more it'll squirt away from you.
2: Yeah, that's why I called it, call it jumping into it and not. Yes, exactly. Support.
0: It's sometimes called the holy jumping off point. Yeah, you simply just have to take the leap, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but then there are ways that the leap can be kind of supported, generated, and that sort of thing. But in so, short, I, uh, good for you. Makes me, makes me thank smile. You. Yeah, thank welcome. You. Okay, so. Let me get, there's a couple of written ones and then we'll come back. Maura has a live one, we'll get to that. Um, It's a rich session today. From Rhonda, um, the teachings say that the last thought before the moment of death is so important. That is correct. It may dictate or influence the continuation of thought that arises when our consciousness is restored from a lapse, correct. The last thought is also important before going to sleep. And can affect the entire dream experience, correct? <laughs> what is the connection or stays connected through the lapse or unconsciousness? Yeah, this is a good question. Thank you, Rhonda. So, for sure. So, the teachings, yeah, last thought, best thought, my languaging. Um, the last thought before a moment of transition, whether it's death, dream, thought, is actually quite powerful. It's used um, in the practice of POA, in the Pure Land traditions, uh, the Pure Land teachings altogether. And it has to do with the engagement of the second of four laws of transitional karma. So it gets a little technical here, Rhonda, where um, at any moment of transition, there are four laws of karma continuity taking place heavy karma, proximate karma, habitual karma, random karma. You're talking about the second of the four, which is called proximate karma which is also based on the principles of what's called the immediately preceding condition. And so um, this phenomena has import, as you say, across um, reiterative levels. It's like a fractal from life to life, from thought to thought, from day to dream. Any moment there's a gap, a a seeming discontinuity, there is something, but again, it's not a thing. This connects to the earlier question. And there is something, no thing, that continues. And so in order to really understand what that is, we literally have to change the way we think um, because it's not a thing that continues. It's a, it's a, it's a push, it's a momentum. It's um, on relative level, this would be what's called the eighth consciousness that continues on an absolute level, this would be Rigpa or sometimes called the ninth consciousness which is a slight misnomer. So something does, something in fact does continue. It's, it's related to Stephanie's question about the um, uh, indestructible continuum. So if you're really interested in exploring this and it's a really wonderful deep topic, topic the teachings on the Yogacara are perhaps the most compelling here. Um, so Luminous Heart by Karl Bernholtzl. So there's a vast literature here. Um, that's probably the most compelling book I've come across in the number of years that talks about this sort of thing. So really to get this type of thing when you get so subtle, when, some, when something actually continues in, in, a, in a space where there doesn't seem to be anything, it's because it's not a thing. And, and that's why it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Well, what do you mean it's not a thing? Well, you, we don't have to fall into Aristotle's laws of thought, which is we, we think in these Aristotelian ways. Um, and that type of thinking does not have traction in this world. It, it just falls apart here. It doesn't work. You can't think about non-things, it, it's, they're, they're completely contradictory. Um, so therefore, um, changing the way we think, refining our thinking and then eventually through actually the art of practice, deep meditation, you will start to experience for yourself what it is that continues. Again, it's not an it, there's this karma, this habit, uh, uh, I wouldn't say habit, this momentum, this kind of push that continues so one one image you could you could use because again like like bernardo images come into play they're more important than language here is you know when you're when you're like running to leap across a chasm a cliff or something when you're jumping on one level yeah you can say well I'm jumping but there's this there's this momentum that's carrying you across right and so that that momentum is in fact eighth consciousness so technically that's what it is On a relative level on a not level on an absolute level it's this indestructible continuum and um there's so much to say about both of those but for the purposes of time maybe that will get you running and jumping (laughs) okay so let me get another one here from my friend barry always nice to hear from barry recently you were talking about anger and working with it i remember that gampopa wrote that one act of anger can erase eons of merit. I asked my wife about this and she said, that's why we dedicate merit when we finish our activity. In her tradition, she calls it finishing prayers. So the more we do meritorious things, the sooner we should dedicate our merit to make sure it benefits others before we get angry. Yeah, very, in short, yes. Um, You know, Who am I to contest the veracity of these proclamations by the traditions? But let me tell you, Um, my read on this. My read on this is we take these teachings seriously but we don't take them literally. Um, Because on one level, if you take it literally, this does not make sense to me. You know, how can one moment of anger erase eons of merit? It it makes no sense. So these are, in my estimation, these are hyperbolic teachings. These These are teachings that are designed to be read in fact as metaphors. That doesn't mean we don't take them seriously but don't take them literally. Because if you take this literally, like, well, I'm just going to drink a beer and shoot myself. I don't have a chance, right? I just don't have a chance. If one moment of anger is going to erase moments of eons of merit, why bother accumulating merit? I'm screwed. (laughs) Maybe you're not, but I am. So, again, I'm revealing my limitations. So, to me, um, you know, literally, this just doesn't make sense to me metaphorically, parabolically as a parable and an allegory, yes, take it seriously but don't take it literally uh, because otherwise really this doesn't inspire me at all. It depresses me, It's like I don't stand a chance, right? But uh, you get the idea. For me, the idea is dedicate the merit as much as you can, as often as you can and guess what you may notice, you will find yourself actually accumulating more merit. You'll be doing more meritorious deeds uh, but what you say, what Gampopa says, obviously the literature does say that, but it, it does, just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and it's a little bit like they say, and I got busted on this years ago when I first started studying this stuff, you know, oh, what is greater the tears that I have shed throughout my previous lives or all the, all the water in the oceans? Greater by far are the tears that I have shed. I don't think so. I mean, I know a little bit about science, right? I mean, you're talking about like how many trillions of tears. No, and so I used to think that was literal. Um, and then I asked my teachers and they said, no, these are parables. You don't have to take them literally. Take them seriously, but don't take them literally. Okay. From Tim, hi Andrew, if everything comes out of the pure light mind. Yes, um, not only does everything come out of the pure light mind, Tim, everything is the pure light mind, clear light mind. So a very subtle nuance point, but an important one. Um, just at the very outset, if we think that everything comes out of the pure light mind, that's a subtle cosmological dualism that therefore intimates that we have to return to that pure light mind, that it's somehow, somehow transcendent to the actual experience. So I, I understand when you're saying some, you know, it comes out of the pure light ma- mind on one level, you could say that's provisionally true on a relative level, but on an absolute level, no, it comes out as the pure light mind, the pure uh, clear light mind. So back to you, if everything comes out of this mind, which is the essence and the source of all, it's more the essence than the source. How is it that we see such an amount of evil and suffering on our planet today? If you're understanding, in your understanding what is the Tibetan, Buddhist teaching on this issue? Um, Well, it has to do with the lack of recognition of this fundamental purity, um, Tim, that yes, indeed, if you really look at the true nature or whatever arises, it's always sacred, it's always perfectly pure. This is pro- proclaimed by all the non-dual wisdom traditions. Technically speaking, the way to explore this, again, I try to send out some references because I can't unpack these beautiful deep questions with, I mean, we could give an entire talk on this one again, is to explore the difference between what's called Kalpa and Kalpa with thought construction and without thought construction. So whenever, Something arises, the first moment, the first expression is perfectly pure, nirvikalpa, without thought construct. It's pure. And so the issue is really one of recognition. If you can recognize that fundamental purity, you will forever remain at the level of Nirvikalpa and you will attain what's called Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you know, the, the perfect purity of the awakened ones. But Due to the power of habit, lack of recognition, non-lucidity, whatever term you want to use, ignorance, we don't recognize it. Um, and therefore Nervy Kalpa then progresses into what's called savi Kalpa with thought construction. And then from that comes propancha and proliferation and the whole, what you're saying, the evil and the suffering and everything that's on the planet. That comes from adventitious defilement, savi Kalpa, accrued on top of this fundamental purity all of which irreducibly is born from a lack of recognition. That fundamentally at every moment it is like you say, um, fundamentally perfectly pure. Again, it may not be your version of purity. It may not be your version of Nirvana, but it is in fact, in its essence, just that. So for the purposes of time, my friend, unless you want to follow up with that, that's where that one takes me. Okay, so Maura is live, right? Um, And then Kara. So, Maura, if you're there, I want to ask a question. Please. Yeah. Hi. So,
4: um, this is a question that I've never really known how to talk to people about, but I Lisa <laughs> kind of helped me coming to this. So, I did the shamatha project with Alan Wallace, Ooh. and my choice yeah. of meditation um, object was awareness of awareness. Beautiful. And my experience with that was that at the very beginning, I would feel like I was about to fall into some sort of precipice. And if I relaxed, I would fall into the precipice. But after I had been in it, I can't say that I was conscious, but yet I was very conscious. But It was as I come out of it that I realized where I had been, if that
0: makes any sense. It it does make sense. you're suggesting that when you were actually in that space, there really wasn't any level of. Um, there was of, no
4: subject object.
0: There was exactly, something. Exactly, exactly. There was
4: no subject object, but I never really quite knew how to describe it, how to talk about it. That still happens now in meditation, but I'm not as afraid of it. And it did give me a lot of yums.
0: Boy, can you say a little less go once yeah 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 yeah
4: yeah. and very painful ones yeah of course yeah um and at this point years after the shamatha project you know having done nature of mind practices with men here yeah. and other things i'm not exactly sure even now how to relate to it how to relate to these experiences as they come and maybe yeah. the thing is to just relax and not-
0: Let them go. Do anything with it. Exactly, let them go. Um, because that's the only way um, experience matures into realization. That's the only way nyam matures into tokpa, is you have to, re- again, that's what I mentioned, I think in this session, you have to reinstate the conditions that brought about the experience to begin with. So the best way to relate to them, and this is not to say that it, it's not helpful to understand them, to ask questions, Because very often what happens, and this is why we have the tradition has this kind of tripartite approach, understanding, experience, realization. So even more fundamental, I wouldn't say more fundamental, more basic than experience is understanding. And so the reason this is important is for exactly the the reason uh, that you're asking is you can actually have an experience without proper understanding. That's right. not inherently problematic, but sometimes it can be confusing. No, right?
4: but I am a scientist by training. Oh, cool. and I was very disappointed that we couldn't have this open discussion about what this might mean. Yeah. In other words, you ha- if my paradigm is that, and that's why I did the shamatha project, and I if, was when you meditating say that, for science, okay. then not being allowed to discuss
0: it was... Um, That's frustrating. That's frustrating. It's
4: actually very painful.
0: That's frustrating. I, I'm a little surprised. So this is just—I mean—I was up there actually for part of that. Alan's a dear friend. I think he's amazing. Oh, but I think just, so too. By the way, <laughs> totally, he's a rock star. But but yes. you weren't you weren't actually able to discuss these with him?
4: No, it was almost like we shouldn't be talking about our experiences because uh, then you grandstanding.
0: Uh, no, no, I'm just trying to
4: understand. I know. I, I
0: I understand, and and I have to say right? I don't agree, I don't agree with that because on one level yes. Um, I, I suspect there are- Well, there is very traditional. Exactly, exactly. And so the idea there, especially in any kind of public thing, you don't share. But, you know, there's a different way to look at that, that if, if one shares from a gesture of offering and when it's coming from, and one's really checking one's motivation, one really wants to know, one really wants to bring benefit to self and other, then asking, sharing, and even challenging and questioning, I think is critically important. So again, who am I to criticize Ellen? I love the guy, I think he's a genius. I have infinite respect for him. Yeah, I agree. But I I would actually, I would roll a little bit different with that because like you, and I I, I had these types of experiences very early on where I had no understanding, um, no conceptual doctrinal, and it became a very serious problem for me because I actually thought what was originally an enlightenment experience turned out really to grow into a, a, an experience of insanity because I but didn't in my case one. he, he sent me to look for things like a, almost a spiritual emergence situation exactly exactly really, totally unnecessary exactly. I could not agree more with you and what you're saying I believe is so important and so yeah I'm, I'm in your camp so to speak on this one I, I strongly believe that when you have these types of experiences that's what the teacher is there for.
4: But we're Westerners. We're not Tibetans.
0: Well, but still. Yeah, but
4: irres-
0: Irrespective of that to me. And again, you can see the, the untoward sequela of not having that. Right, exactly. So I, again, I don't agree with that approach. Um, that's just my style. And so to say a couple of things, it sounds to me, you know, we would really have to unpack with some Q&A. You could have fallen actually into Rigpa. You could have fallen into an eighth consciousness, but either way, you know, they not all experiences of non-duality or unity are actually experiences of a full non-dual state. Non-duality comes in, in, you know, gradations. But what you're saying, it makes total perfect sense that when you're in it, there's no subject object recognition. There's no sense of self and other. And so everything that is actually, so to speak, downloaded comes on, um, post-meditatively. In other words, you retrofit the experience when you're Mm -hmm, out of it. mm -hmm. And so the retrofitting then becomes important because that helps you in fact understand like WTF was that. These experiences are all explainable. And when you you understand through dialogue, dialectic, whatever, what's actually happening, then several things happen. You can separate the wheat from the chaff, you can find your way back to that space you can actually then better assess the authenticity of it or lack thereof. And so therefore proper understanding to me is super important. And like you know, when I did my three year retreat, we, we had to have guidance. We had to have our Drupon, our retreat master, because you're, you know, like with the shamatha practice, but you know, imagine doing this for years, all kinds of stuff is gonna come up. All these nyams are gonna come up. And so you really kind of have to have this support Otherwise you can really get seriously lost or you can really get in trouble. And so I'm not sure where you wanna take this. In short, there are ways um, to gain access to people that can help you really understand like really what the heck was that? How do I work with it? But fundamentally as an overarching recommendation, um, you, you just let it go. On one level, yes, you work to understand it. You try, you ask for sure, absolutely. But on another level, you do want to just let it go. And I think they're not irreconcilable, you can do both. In order to progress on your practice, you actually do both. But if you get too attached to it, you keep trying to repeat it, you try to on one level to understand it mm-hmm. too hard, that can backfire. So to me, it's it's a hybrid approach. You continue to work with it, ask questions, challenge, inquire, what was that? And then on another level, you just let the whole bloody thing go and you just keep going. And so. Barry was talking earlier about Gampopa, you know, when Gampopa would come to Milarepa um, in his biography, like one day he would come to Milarepa and say, oh my God, yesterday, the mandala of Chakrasanvara opened before me. And it was the most unbelievable thing. And Milarepa would sat there and say, you know, neither good nor bad, just continue. The next week, uh, Mil- uh, Gampopa would come back and say, oh, I'm about to commit suicide. I've never been so depressed. This, just, this is just a total crap show. What am I doing here? And Milarepa would say, it's neither good nor bad continue. And so that's the approach. The one taste, neither good nor bad, because they're nyams. They're all experiences. And you have the bliss, clarity, non-thought thing, unbelievably important, but that's like licking honey from a razor edge. Be careful. You have the crap show. That's like, oh, I can't get rid of it. No, you relate to that in the same way you relate to the bliss until you come to the great equanimity where you see the equanimous nature of both. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'm, in short, that's what comes to mind. These things are definitely explainable. That's why you have teachers um, to sit there. And if they don't understand, they'll refer you to people who do. They can share from their own experience, like, yeah, this is, I think, what happened. And usually it resonates. People will say, you know what? That really helps me understand what was going on. So I'm not sure where else you want to take that, but that's okay. No,
4: this is good. I, this is very helpful that you have these kinds of forums where people feel yeah, free cool. to ask the question. Yeah. And I appreciate it. And if
0: Necessary, be I'll reach out to you in some other way. Totally, that'd be Thank great. Thank you so much. Thanks for the great question. Okay, so a couple more. I, I've got about ten minutes, and then I have to run to my next little thingy. Um, so, Barbara, live question, Oglakara. I had a couple of questions about the Sedona retreat scheduling, mostly about what time it starts and ends. Uh, you mean day to day, or to determine when I would need to get there and when I would expect to get a flight out? Write to me. Uh, at AndrewHaluchek.com, Barbara, and I can I can get, fill you in on all this, okay? Um, because I don't know without looking at my calendar, this doesn't roll off the top of my head. But we obviously have all this data, so um, you can contact me, and I will answer this question very specifically. Uh, thanks for your interest. Okay, so Kara, if you're there, fire away. Yeah,
3: I'm here. Hi. Hi. Uh- Uh, I hope this is a short one. I'm conflicted about (laughs) this. Um, uh, I was looking at something at Menla. I think in the beginning of September, Robert Thurman uh, is doing a retreat and the prerequisite was the Kala Chakra Tantra transmission and Kentral Rinpoche is doing it online. right? But I feel like, I mean, I feel conflicted because I feel like I should really... I should make, am I being a dilettante just wanting to sort of hop from program to program and take what I want? And I feel like I really do want to go deeper, but I feel like, like how many of these transmissions can you get? And if I get this one, like, I feel weird about it.
0: So I'm hearing several different questions. So is is, is the question about attending um, his program or the question about-
3: question is, if I do this, um, this transmission online,
0: the uh, chapter empowerment. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, what are the implications (laughs) of that? Not spiritually, but just, am I then committed to going in this one direction or can can I get another one later?
0: (laughs) You can get another one later. So yeah, these empowerments. So he's doing the whole, it's a four day event. He's doing the whole thing online
3: yes but you can watch the recordings he only wants you to be live when he does the transmission but he wants you to watch and read beforehand
0: yeah that's cool that's a big one to do you know usually this is this is one of the biggest empowerments you know it takes four full days so here's here's the deal with these guys um there's several different ways to receive uh, an empowerment a wong or abhisheko um on one level you can receive it as a blessing transmission that's not, that's not problematic at all. And in that case, you can go to as many as you want to kind of just soak in the rain of blessings. You're not being a dilettante if you do that. If you're taking the transmission, the Abhisheka at a deeper level, that's a different story because then you get into what are called Samaya, which are the kind of uh, tantric vows that are connected to, you know, I make a commitment to really engage in this practice to recite a hundred million mantras or whatever and engage in the pujas and the practices. That's a different beast. That's a whole different level of of, um, commitment. And so on one level, no, you're not being a dilettante. And especially if you ask that question, it reveals that you're already sensitive to that problem. One can in fact become a shopper and dilettante and you just spend all your time gathering all the stuff. Eventually that can become problematic because you, you're not gonna digest anything. You're just you know, consuming, not even consuming, you're just nibbling on all this stuff and nothing's gonna really change. So we have to be a little careful we can just become discursive in the practices and the transmissions and, and, and all that sort of thing. But if you're, if you're going from one Abhisheka to the next just to, re, not just, but to receive the blessing transmission, that's totally fine. Um, if you're going into it to become a full-blown kalachakra or a practitioner, that's a different story. Okay. There's a whole different set of criteria around that. And um, we could talk about that perhaps in a different format. Okay, so, great, something thank like you. That? Okay, all right. So geez, these questions are so good. Here's one from Jenny. I know this was from, from three weeks ago. This is an easy, quick one. Uh, Jenny's writing in from Europe. um, And basically she wants to know, she has a lot of stuff here about the vaccine and all that sort of thing. I'm not gonna um, get into a debate about my view on this. I'm just gonna, she's basically asking me what I think about the vaccine. (laughs) I guess this is what I say when you can ask me anything, right? Uh, um, I'm not gonna defend it. I'm just gonna say as, as a medical person, more or less, And all my doctor, scientist, friends, bar none, just do it. Just do it. I I think in my estimation, it's silly not to. I'm not going to engage in debate. We all have our views. But there's so much um, misinformation on this. Uh, 53% of people now get their data on social media. And there's so much colossal misinformation. If you don't take it, you run the risk of dying. Um, Just do it. I'm not going to go any further than that. I don't want to get political. Um, Just do it. That's just me. You don't agree. That's okay. Okay. From Garuda. Oh, wow. A question from a Garuda. That's awesome. Yes. Is Quetzalcoatl? Is that how you pronounce it? A Naga? I don't know. A protector. I don't know. Um, right. The Mexican entity. I just don't know. Um, do all sentient beings have dreams? (laughs) No. It depends on how far um, you go down and how you define sentience. Um, Sentience in in the wisdom tradition languaging is basically that which experiences pleasure and pain. And so you have to have a nervous system. Um, And in short, no, not all sentient beings have dreams. Since appearance is a dream on one level, true, at what point in species complexity do dreams start happening? Uh, this is where you need to talk to a dream scientist. Since samsara is the dream, all beings reside in. Yeah, we're using dream in several different ways here. So this, is, this stuff gets a little bit slippery when we use these multivalent terms. Just because it's the same signifier doesn't mean it's the same signified. So um, at what point do, in species complexity do dreams start happening? Nobody knows for sure. I mean, who's been able to put an EEG or, uh, put a porpoise into an fMRI or an octopus who knows? No one that I know of, um, has been able to like track how far down this goes. If there's some data on this out there, I don't know about it. So the questions about the NAGA protector, I can't answer that. I just don't know. Um, since samsara is the dream all sentient beings reside in. Well, they're not residing in samsara because samsara is not a state, samsara is an an illusion. So samsara is not a a state in reality, it's a state in mind. So when we talk about all beings residing in samsara, no, they're they're residing fundamentally in nirvana. That's the only thing that really exists. Samsara is just a partial or non-recognition of nirvana. So, I would contest the last statement. Um, Samsara is the dream in which all beings reside. Um, I wouldn't agree with that. Samsara is a state of mind, not a state in reality. And so, there's another really good question from Wake here about microdosing. Um, because I'm running out of time, I'm going to have to come back to that one. Um, it's a really interesting question about LSD, microdosing, and stuff like that. <laughs> hey, I mean, let, we're going to talk about everything here, but I'm going to have to let that one go, my friend, if you're even listening. We'll come back to that next time. Um, It's a really interesting question. And we can talk about um, kind of very interesting models of how this works with mind in terms of um, actually reducing the activity of the brain. It's very interesting. I mentioned this several weeks ago that in many of these altered so-called spiritual states, they're actually defined by reduction in brain activity not enhancement, reduction, especially reduction in what's called the doors, uh, default mode network and the salience network. Aspects of the brain that are correlative to ego, those puppies aspects of the brain are really damped. And when those, experience, when those aspects of the drain are damped, the filtering system that usually blocks out spiritual experiences um, is removed and you start to see things in a new way. So I'll return to that one next time, my friend about the rebus model, psychedelics, etc. But for now, I got to run. So thank you, everybody. It, it, it's been a long time. A um, little bit of catch up today. Oh, Alex, I'm going to have to get you next week, my friend. Um, I got to run. So Alex is first for next time. Um, and Wake uh, is, is, is second for next time. We'll get back to you all. Thank you, everybody. We can put on our, our little goofy goodbye. Um, we can take bye, off our buddy. micro take off our microphones for a <laughs> second. Thank you.
4: Thank yeah. you.
2: Thank you. Bye, thank thank you. you. Thank you, <laughs> thank you Andrew. Oh, bye,
0: everybody.
2: Bye. Bye.
3: Bye. bye. bye.
2: bye. See you. See you all in my brain. <depicted laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, bye. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye, I say <laughs> hello. Hi. <laughs> Thanks again, Andy. <laughs> Good
4: job. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: boy.
4: His <laughs> helper wasn't there.
1: Oh, Andy was there. Oh. Here. Um...
4: Honestly, I'd rather not. So long.